Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, and Rob Smith, a capital markets correspondent. Down the line from the US, we have Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, who's been talking to Jordan Belfort, the real wolf of Wall Street. This week, we'll be talking about the real identity of Deutsche Bank's biggest shareholder, a look at Europe's investment banks as they begin to hire again, And finally, Ben's interview with Jordan Belfort, the man behind the Wolf of Wall Street film, who is now a motivational speaker. First, though, to Deutsche Bank. And Rob, you have written a fascinating expose of the true identity of Deutsche Bank's biggest shareholder. Now, as many people who are listening to this will know, HNA, a slightly shadowy Chinese group, bought into Deutsche Bank with very little warning a year or so ago, taking close to 10% of the shares. What your reporting has revealed is that they're arguably more shadowy than we thought. They're certainly more complex than we thought. And there are entities that lie behind the group that no one seems to have ever heard of. Tell us more. Yeah. What a lot of people who haven't spent the time to look at H&A probably don't realise is that there is no one H&A there's sort of a hundred different entities with cross holdings in one another, some of which are in mainland China, some of which are in Hong Kong, and then some of which are in the British Virgin Islands, Bermuda, all those kind of offshore island, very secret sort of places. Let's state for the record, first of all, what we do know or what we thought we knew about HNA. HNA had its roots in a Chinese airline, Hainan Airline, decades ago, but has since become a conglomerate and went through this slightly mad expansion phase over the past, what, 12 to 24 months where it was buying companies around the world. Yeah, it was seemingly buying not just airline-related stuff anymore and using very complicated forms of financing to do so often with a lot of debt at different levels. So you could look at one entity and say, oh, this is the debt here, but actually there was more debt. Uh, Another entity secured on that debt and all sorts of very opaque stuff going on. And so what was the most interesting thing that you discovered when you started delving deep into the structures behind the broader HNA group? The way I really got interested in it was someone had told me that a man called Lars Windhorst had tried to do a deal for H&A. A lot of people won't know who Lars Windhorst is, but he's incredibly famous in Germany because he had several very high-profile bankruptcies and then a suspended jail sentence for some financing techniques that went wrong, shall we say. I managed to get hold of the investor presentation that his group made for H&A, and this was back in 2012, before anyone really in the West knew a lot about H&A. But what struck me was just the structures they were using in this presentation were incredibly complex. So that kind of got me digging into what else have they done. And 
I sort of asked someone, what's the most interesting thing about this tangle of companies? And, you know, he's a very smart person who'd spent a lot of time trying to understand it. And he said, well, you can't ultimately really find out where Deutsche Bank sits in this whole mess if you go through the public filings. So that was kind of like the spark which led me on this kind of journey of trying to discover what the answer was. And it led you ultimately to Bermuda. Yeah, it's very interesting. So there's two entities that hold the H&A stake. And one is called Innovation Finance. And that was set up last year, primarily as a commodities trading unit. But the thing is, the entity above that is supposedly called GAR. But it's incredibly hard to find anything about this entity. H&A has some GAR logos on some promotional material and presentations, but it gives no explanation of what it is. In some filings, it's called GAR Holding. In other filings, it's called GAR Holdings. And in Bermuda, there is a company's house register for GAR Holding. It has the same head as H&A Innovation Finance. They are presumably the same. And yet, we don't know that. <laughs> and H&A won't tell us or haven't told us whether they are one and the same. So a lot of questions limited answers so far, but I know your reporting is ongoing on this. Of course, another layer of complexity on all of this is that when HNA acquired this shareholding, they used a structure devised with UBS to collar their holding to protect the downside on that. And so at various points when the share price of Deutsche Bank falls, UBS ultimately becomes the beneficial owner. Is that right? Potentially. This is the problem with collars and what a collar is in simple terms, and there are no simple terms. It's a lot like a margin loan where you use derivatives to hedge out the triggers on a margin loan. So typically a margin loan would trigger if the stock slides. But the point is they're all different and they're all very complicated. And it's a private facility that UBS has provided H&A. And again, when we say H&A, we mean one of H&A's entities. And it's very hard to get any kind of clarity on what the state of affairs is. Let me bring Laura in at this point, because the root question here is, what does this mean for Deutsche Bank? This is its biggest shareholder, and there's huge mystery around it. We know that the chairman, Paul Achleitner, was closely involved with bringing in this investment at a point where Deutsche Bank really needed fresh capital. And yet it feels more like a liability, really, than a benefit for the bank to have this investor on board. I think Deutsche is certainly at a stage now where it could live without them and would probably happily live without them. The problem is that having an obtuse structure does not in itself block somebody from buying a stake. Now, in theory, the European Central Bank looks after the fitness and probity of bank owners. And in theory, they should have done everything that Rob has done and more. And because they're allowing GAR GAR to maintain this stake, they should be reassured that GAR is a fit and proper owner for a Eurozone bank. I mean, there's two things that a bank needs to meet shareholders. In the crisis situation, they would ideally like shareholders to be capable of putting up additional funds. I don't think anyone really thinks that Deutsche is going to have a capital raise in the next couple of years. Now, with Deutsche, you can never really say never. They have a lot of form on this. But there isn't an urgent capital need that they need their shareholders to fill. The other then is that in the event h and becomes a forced seller, it could have a massive impact on the stock. You should think, if you believe in any kind of underlying value of the stock, that in the event that there was a HNA-related fire sale off that stake, it would lead to short-term price weaknesses. But underlying, it should be in a better place than it is today because you have taken away the uncertainty factor of when HNA is going to pull out. So for a long-term investor in the bank, I would not say this is an issue. For a short-term investor, and we're thinking about the share price move over the next couple of months, given what's happening around the Chinese companies generally, with the whole Anbank situation, if you think 
H&A could pull out in the next few months, then you certainly wouldn't be holding on to much Deutsche if you're looking for value in the short term. For the bank, I think there's a number of people within the bank at senior levels who would happily have H&A off the share register. The problem is they can't do very much about their shareholders. Just a quick thing to pick up on there. You mentioned Anbang, the recent crackdown from the Chinese authorities on the big Chinese insurer. Remind us exactly what happened there and what the parallel with H&A might be. Well, I guess Anbang was viewed as one of the most expansionary and successful Chinese financial companies. It was a big insurance company going out and making acquisitions, investments all over the world and is now being controlled by the Chinese state indefinitely. It was kind of seen as being invincible because its senior operatives had very close links to the Chinese government. But actually, it is being brought under state control as China looks to manage its economy even more carefully. So you would just worry that if they were to move against HNA in a similar way, that might have implications for HNA's overseas investments, including Deutsche. We will see and we will keep a close watch. We may invite Rob back when he gets more answers to his questions. Thank you for that. Let's move on to our second topic and sticking with you, Laura, you broke an interesting story the other day about how Europe's big banks, particularly the investment banks, have been net hirers in recent months. This is a fairly dramatic turnaround, I suppose, after many years of cutbacks. What did you find? These were disclosures in their annual results. Yeah, so I think we've covered extensively regular listeners on the podcast will know the decline of Europe's investment banks over the last couple of years, partly because the investment bank market has been tough for everybody, partly because three of the biggest European investment banks, Credit Suisse, Barclays and Deutsche Bank, have all been going through their own strategic plans and they've been cutting costs as fast as they can. They've been cutting units, pulling out of businesses. The collective impact of that has been that the four biggest investment banks in Europe, so those three plus UBS, have been shrinking their workforces fairly consistently for the last couple of years until the second half of 2017, when we saw across those four banks, that's Credit Suisse, UBS, Barclays and Deutsche Bank, the first increase in collective net hiring for the group of banks. And that's an interesting turning point because it shows that they are evolving from the cutback stage to the invest stage. And that's going to be interesting going forward. How much does this trend among the European banks signal them kind of re-engaging in competition with the US banks? They've been on the front foot for quite some time now. Is this a signal that they're going to become more aggressive in terms of the competitiveness of the market? For some of them, it's just that they've just been so distracted or so consumed by their restructuring that now they're looking to growth again. And there's also the fact that the market is getting better. So a number of banks have talked about the pickup in volatility in the first quarter, and that's going to help the market overall. In terms of their competitive positioning, we've obviously seen the European banks, particularly in Europe, actually taking a battering at the hands of the US banks. Ironically, Brexit will help the EU banks in this regard as things stand because it looks like the large EU investment banks will be able to run branches in London as they currently do. And that's going to allow them to have a single pool of capital across the EU, and that will make it more efficient for them to do business. The US banks, on the other hand, look very likely to have to maintain separate capital for their EU and their UK entities. That will put them at a competitive disadvantage. So we may be approaching something of a reshuffling, in the world order. And certainly there are things that would lend itself to the European banks having a better time going forward. The one caveat I would make is I did speak to recruiters around these figures. One of them made the point that the European banks did have an uptick in hiring in the second half of last year, but it was partly because they had hired so poorly in previous quarters. And they were saying the indication so far this year was that the US banks are going to be stronger hirers. So we kind of need to wait to see how this one plays out. But there's certainly indications that the era of the European banks being in retreat, retreat, retreat is coming to an end. And they are thinking more about strategic investment going forward in those more positive market conditions. 
again one to watch thank you well finally over to the US and I'm sure many listeners will have seen Leonardo DiCaprio in The Wolf of Wall Street well the real Wolf of Wall Street Jordan Belfort has been talking to Ben McClanahan Mr Belfort the model for Martin Scorsese's film was a boiler room scamster was imprisoned and basically led a life of crime on Wall Street before becoming a life coach he's been telling his story to Ben McClanahan our US banking editor so, Jordan Belfort, thanks very much for joining us on Banking Weekly. From the book, uh, the movie, The Wolf of Wall Street, but now you've, you've taken a pivot. You're, you're a motivational speaker touring the nation. And what, what are some of the messages you're bringing to the masses? Well, I think that I, I don't really view myself so much as a motivational speaker as much as a, a trainer for entrepreneurs, salespeople, and also combined with motivation wrapped around that. Because I think you need to be successful both aspects. It can't just be motivation, which is like a warm bath. It feels really good, and you should probably take one every single day, but it doesn't really do that much for you, versus strategy, showing someone, you know, how do you go about creating certainty in another human being, which is persuasion and sales. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, one of the things I did very well intuitively back when I was much younger, and I didn't use this for the best purposes, of course, at Stratton, was, was mixing this blend of motivation with actual skills training. Together, it's a very powerful combination when you have both of them. And to what extent are you you bringing lessons you learned uh, during your 22-month period inside? In some respects, I mean, the big mistake I made back in my my youth (laughs) was, um, you know, not really grounding everything I did with ethics and integrity and and making sure that you, you know, there's two fundamental principles I go by now is number one, you should always look to give more value than you look to take in money. And that's something I do with every transaction I engage in myself. When I give a seminar, I always say to myself, I want to make sure that when people leave, they say, you know, whatever I paid for the ticket, I he gave me 10 times as much value. And I think mm-hmm. that's, and while you can't always succeed in business, when you try, you make mistakes. But if that's your intent, I think it's a really, really good place to come from. That's number one. And number two is to, you know, just to go out there and to say to yourself, I'm not going to focus on, instant gratification on on doing things for short-term gain. I'm going to look more for the long-term. Because I think that one thing I've learned is that very often in life, good things take time. You know, success is not instant. Interesting that someone convicted of uh, scamming people, uh, you you identify Bitcoin as an obvious scam. Perhaps you could go into why you think this is such a menace. I think it's a total menace. That's a great word. I think that there's so many unintended consequences to what happened with Bitcoin. I don't think that Bitcoin itself is a scam, per se. Uh, I don't think it was started to be a scam. So there's this different groups of people in Bitcoin. There are some really, really, really bad actors in Bitcoin. Probably maybe 10% of the people involved in it. Maybe 15, who knows. But there's enough. Unfortunately, when, a financial, when you have a financial system with 10% of bad actors, it's like the nuclear holocaust. It's really, really, you can't, you just can't have, there's not room for it, especially with something like Bitcoin, which is a dark market where there is virtually no regulation and it attracts those people. But I've watched what's happened with the millennials and it's, I'm, I'm distraught by it. I really am. I have, you know, millions of fans and they've bought into this hype and bullshit because they don't know. They just unsophisticated. And it's not, they're not criminals. They're honest kids and they really believe what they've been told. So they're vulnerable to the same manipulation that um, your teams are employing. Well, we were calling more sophisticated investors. Does it make it any better or worse? It's just not a direct parallel. I would think that maybe I myself manipulated younger people when I was young myself. When I was in my 20s, yes, I used the abilities I had with persuasion to get people to sell things for me that they shouldn't have been selling. I'm the first to admit that. Mm -hmm. Um, The problem with Bitcoin is that this is like – this is – 
penny stocks, and then I was doing $5 stocks, but whatever they were, it's like on steroids. All these so-called cryptocurrencies, they're blind pools. They're no different than the blind pools of the 80s where you essentially raise money for nothing. There's a controlled amount to them, but there's really no scarcity in crypto because you can just keep launching new cryptos. The SEC, under, under new leadership, has been making noises about uh, launching a serious crackdown. Are, are they not serious about that serious well, crackdown? They, they were un- in front of Congress the other day, and they, they did something so stupid is they just don't understand the depths of what they're dealing with. Is they said things with the, what they said is that we want we believe, and I could show you a text from four days ago to CNBC where I predicted the outcome. I said they're going to say they want to regulate all ICOs as IPOs. Mm-hmm. Obvious. They have to because they are IPOs. They need to re- full-blown registration for all ICOs. They said they want to do that, right? What they didn't say is and that will shut down every ICO because it will. If you, had to, if you actually made them go to 12G reporting, they have to all get audits. Mm-hmm. They, can halt, they can now halt trading. It's game over. Instead, they said, we believe that cryptocurrencies have a they're – they're sending out a mixed message. So what happened? The fraudsters will then take little sound bites from that hearing and use that to promote – Oh, the SEC is behind their backing Bitcoin, which is exactly what's happening now. All the like the Coin Telegraph and Coin, all the industry trade publications, which rely on the success of cryptos, they're taking little quotes out of the out of the hearings right now, and they're saying the U.S. is behind it. They're going to promote. They're going to protect us, and they're sending out false signals. The SEC is they're out of their minds to do that. They don't they don't understand the depths of fraud that's so, going so, on. Let's broaden this out a, a little bit. And looking across Wall Street these days, with all the post-crisis measures to tighten behavior and to improve, you know, capital liquidity for all the big banks and make the brokers just generally better run. Do, do you see any signs that uh, things really have improved? Yes, they have improved somewhat. Things could always improve more. The difference is, is that they're dealing in things that have underlying value. They're, you know, with stocks and bonds, there's actually real value there. And the problem, why, why, it, why it's so disastrous in crypto is because the underlying assets are not there, so it's mm-hmm. just a little air. Go to Wall Street right now, and what you'll see is a lot of the – at least, listen, 2009, 2010, 2011, they were really cracking down. They were really making changes. Some of that is starting to reverse back now, no doubt. And memory on Wall Street is typically pretty short. And people have a tendency to go back to the same old thing. And you could look, look back, and I'm sure in another year or so, you'll probably see people giving no-income mortgages again. Right. Like, it always has a way of, of going back. To the, yeah, but have point. things gotten better? They have gotten better. And I think, you know— But does it need regulators to remain vigilant rather than relaxing some of the requirements? Like, I, don't, I, I think that regulation to needs to be incredibly vigilant, but at the same time, it needs to be smart regulation. What I'm not, what I'm not in favor of is stupid regulation. Because I think that just stifles business and stifles development. So you want to have absolute regulation on things like these um, on derivatives and things like that. But on business itself, I don't believe there should be massive regulation on business per se. Mm-hmm. Yes, on financial instruments, I totally believe that anything you can do to um, to to sort of thwart speculation like that is just not. I don't think it's good for the for the economy. Some is okay, but too much is a disaster. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you what, what you think about the um, relative lack of bankers behind bars during the financial crisis. Clearly, you did time. I did. Uh, you, your, your offenses, perhaps, uh, you could make the case n- not quite as big as others that people appear to have got away with. Do, do, do you feel bitter, sore about that? Not at all. I mean, I, don't, I, I think that, you know, I think it's a, a, a very uh, a victim-like mentality to start saying, well, I didn't do as much as they did. I deserve to go to jail, plain and simple, and that's that. And I, I don't think you compare crimes like that. You know, I, I think that um, the judge did a very smart thing. I deserve to go to jail. I deserve to... To have to stop my life over, and um, the fact that I think that many people that should have paid later on didn't, you know, I mean, I, I'm not saying I'm happy for them, but I don't 
become bitter over that. That's just that life is not fair. And as soon as you start expecting life to be fair, well, you know, good luck trying to be happy, you know? Yeah. So I look at them and say, you know, I guess they're happy they got away with it. I think some people should have definitely gone to jail a lot more than did. But I don't think it has any impact on, you know, I, what happened to me, I deserve to go to jail. Bring it back to your, um, not, not quite motivational speeches, but to your, your trainings. trainings to entrepreneurs across the country. Do, do you talk about regrets? Do you, do you have any? Yeah, of course, of course, I have regret. I mean, I, you know, it's it's interesting. I I don't believe in in um in living a life full of guilt. I think that's just a very terrible way to live. Remorse, I think, is a far more powerful a way for you to learn from mistakes and 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 act differently. And it's also the active form of guilt. Guilt is like, oh, poor me, it's so terrible. I feel bad for me, and I and I still believe in that. And I and I think that um you know, for me, my biggest regrets were only for the things I, I have no regrets for the. For the damage I inflicted on myself, like with drug use, and that's you know that was my life, and I was young, and then you know, and I did what I did, and I lived, thank God, right. But the fact that some of the behaviors I I engaged in lost people money, that I regret. I wish I would have never done that. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't how I was raised. I didn't come from that kind of family, and and it's not the sort of behavior I ever engaged ever again since that happened. So I could, of course, I wish I could change that, but I can't. I made those mistakes, and I'm very careful when I go out into the world, um, whether I write a new book or I give a seminar to make sure that the things I teach people, because the straight line system, what I created as, as a method of influence is very powerful. Uh, and I'm very careful to, to make sure that, that, that you understand that it needs to be used in an ethical way or else you'll end up badly. And you don't want to be in that world anyway, because listen, you know, when you make money, even if you don't get caught, it doesn't feel good. It feels really good to, to wake up every day knowing that you have no skeletons in your closet, that you, you haven't ripped anybody off, that everything that you say you've believed in, you've given more value than you've taken back from people in terms of money. And that's a way that makes you feel good about your success. Jordan Belfort, thanks very much for joining me. My pleasure. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Laura and Rob here in the studio. Also, thanks to Ben and his guest in the US. And thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Amy Keane. Until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.